Welcome to Imagine This Podcast. A conversation show from Imagine MKE, where we talk to creative leaders in Milwaukee and beyond to highlight all the incredible transformative power of their work in our region. We hope that after listening to the pod, you'll be able to imagine our city's arts and culture ecosystem and all the awesome artists, organizations, and creative assets within it in a new way. I'm David Lee. I'm Lindsay Sheridan. And I'm Elizabeth Gasparka. Welcome to Imagine This Podcast. Hey, Elizabeth. Hey, How's Lindsay. It going? It's going well. How are you? I'm good. Greetings from Minnesota, a land we oft refer to here at Imagine as the Mecca of Arts funding. <laughs> Archutopia. Archutopia, Archutopia, USA. Archutopia. So miss all of you and your, your in-person adventures, but glad to be in Artsytopia for a few I'm days. I'm still <laughs> waiting for you to bring back the, the surplus arts funding from, from, yep. from Minnesota. I'll go, I'll pack it up on my way out. Yep. <laughs> How are things in Milwaukee today? Super mm-hmm. hot. Mm-hmm. We've officially entered summer. It took a while, but we're here. And with that, hopefully looking forward to lots of out- outdoor music and happenings coming up. Elizabeth, didn't you go to the first chill on the hill last week? How was that? Oh, I sure did. It was not very hot, but the music was smoking. The music Ooh, was awesome. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I really enjoyed the inaugural chill on the hill this year. Finally, Laurel Sulfate and her ladies of leisure got to have their moment in the sun, <laughs> so to speak, after two years of of having their their sets canceled. So mm-hmm. it was glorious. Mm. Full of folks on the hill. Yes, the the hill was quite full. <laughs> uh, Tammy and I typically do a Tuesday evening salsa lesson that has to like Ooh. change now because Chill on the Hill is back. But every time we drive by Humboldt Park Tuesday evenings around seven or six forty-five, it is just like packed to the gills of people sort of streaming into the park. I'm excited to finally experience it as someone who moved to Milwaukee in September 2019. I don't know how far into the fall Chill on the Hill goes. Maybe I just missed it, but we didn't have it for the last couple summers, right? So right. I'm excited to finally get to experience all these great outdoor Milwaukee things. That's um, right. While, you know what, from, oh, while, yeah. while yeah. visiting Minnesota. I'll be back. <laughs> I'll be back soon. Coming down on the train to a couple days. Yep. So before you <laughs> come back, I, I also just, I'm always wondering who has more lakes? Is it Wisconsin or Minnesota? Mm. Can you do a survey of lakes before you come back? Can you fit that in? (laughs) I'll try. I went to one so far. I went to, uh, there's a, there's a nice little band shell where they have a bunch of live music on a lake, uh, near here in Minneapolis. So I've seen the one and I know there are others, but none of them are as big as our lake. So I think we win in general. I don't know about like number of individual lakes, but we have the best lake of the two states, in my opinion. Then again, I have not visited Superior on this trip. I'm sure mm. that's amazing too. Mm-hmm. It might even be Superior. It might. It might. <laughs> oh no! I said oh, it. No. <laughs> See what you did there. Can Elizabeth? Sorry. Can Elizabeth Sorry. be a dad and, and sort of fill the dad question jokes. of dad jokes? Dad jokes. I've always, I've always been a bastion of dad jokes since like the fourth grade. So I'll own that. I'll own it. You know what else is on the lake, guys? What? The Milwaukee Art Museum. And oh, one yeah. of our, our guests this week is Kentara Souffron, uh, who is who is at MAM at, uh, and will be joining us after the break as we t- uh, will have an incredible conversation with her about art and particularly Haitian art, which was a, a bit of a, of a revelation for mm. me and the role that the Milwaukee Art Museum plays in our region. That's right. So, and, and Elizabeth, before her time here at Imagine, worked at MAM, so I'm sure has lots of stories of uh, working with folks on membership there. But we thought we would all share a little bit of fond memories of our experiences at MAM for David and I just as patrons. But David, what's a, we, we've had some occasions to go to MAM for Imagine-related events that were particularly cool. You want to share about one of those? Yeah. So for me, you know, when we were doing the, uh, the, podcast room writing on this, uh, when the topic came up, the immediate thing that came to mind was our shooting our four and four day video last year. So not this past year's four and four day video, but the one in 2021, we had a segment at the Milwaukee Art Museum where 
I'm I'm playing the role of me, I guess, taking county board chair woman Marcelia Nicholson, her dad, and then county supervisor Jason Haas on a tour of, of, of the art museum. Marcelia also, by the way, serves on the board of the art museum as well. So, I mean, it was just an incredible opportunity to, to be there with Sam Organi, who was our videographer for the project, to uh, do this video shoot and to talk to both Marcelia and Jason about the importance of public funding for the arts and sort of the, the, the role that the county plays. And I think what was also really, really cool about it was that I know it was for me, but it was the first time being back inside the art museum mm. um, since the pandemic and to see people inside the museum taking advantage of, of just the incredible collection and just walking around and sort of interacting with uh, with the space was just I think that was the first moment where I was like I, I think this is going to be okay I think we're going to be all right mm-hmm. How about you Lindsay well I have I mean the, my first thinking was even though I'm not really from Milwaukee. I always had family in the area and would come and visit them in West Dallas and Wauwatosa. And I remember going downtown as a young person to go to MAM and the public museum. I have clear memories of that, but a more recent memory now in this era of life was in early 2020. I remember going to MAM after dark a couple of times. And one of them, uh, Imagine was invited to have a bit of a tabling presence. And we shared with folks about what Imagine was up to. And we also had a, in our style, a participatory activity that included huge post-it notes that people could write on that would share something they, kind of like a hidden gem, something people don't always talk about about Milwaukee. We'll dig up some pictures and link to them in the uh, show description of what were some of the answers that people shared. But I just was struck by how incredibly cool it was to be in a space that can be always stunning, but very quiet. You know, if you attend, mm-hmm. if you're attending the museum on kind of an average day as a patron, there's a reverence in that quiet, but then to like totally flip that on its head and have kind of a melting pot of mostly young people partying it up in the museum. <laughs> it just felt incredibly cool. And it just felt like one of those selling points, like look, Milwaukee's cool. <laughs> and so I, I remember really enjoying that. But Elizabeth, I'm sure you have plenty of stories. What's one you'd so like to share? Many. <laughs> so many stories. I, you're bringing me back, Lindsay, because I remember when I first moved to Milwaukee in 2010, I was a cultural reporter for the Third Coast Digest, and I was sent to Ma'am After Dark to cover it. And I thought, <laughs> wow, this town feels really <laughs> vibrant, really, really hip and exciting. So that was notable. But gosh, so many things stand out to me in my time at the museum. I will say that it made a huge impression on me that I, I brought my parents there early in my time living in Wisconsin and they were totally enthralled. And my parents were not necessarily museum goers, but they, they just loved it. Like, I think I actually ended up leaving them there because I had to go to a meeting or some, <laughs> some work <laughs> obligation that I had to go to. And I left them wandering there and they were so delighted. And they spent, they spent like three hours just wandering the museum. And for years afterwards, they would just always bring it up with exactly what you said, Lindsay, like just pure reverence Mm -hmm. in their, in their voice. So, um, Mm -hmm. I was excited to step into, you know, working in within membership and fundraising at the museum. One other component of my time at the museum that really stands out to me is just the opportunity to program music for events. That was a highlight of my, of my role Mm -hmm. in membership. I got to, um, you know, select local musicians to perform, sometimes in Wendover Hall, um, or what is actually known as the Quadrachi Pavilion, Um, (laughs) and sometimes in the gallery spaces. So I have this memory of having the local amazing harpist, Kim Robertson, performing, you know, amidst the paintings. And that that still stands out to me to this day. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I will say that comes up in our conversation with Kintera is just I, I feel so privileged that I got to be part of the museum's staff and culture when they were preparing to launch the new strategic direction. That was a really inspiring process that brought together cross-sections of docents and volunteers and staff people to spend some time imagining what the museum of the future could look like. And it was it was truly a really really exciting flex as a staff person who mm-hmm. cared about the institution and its future. Um, well, speaking about the future of the museum, you're going to get to talk more with Kintera about uh, her vision from her role. Elizabeth, tell us more about Kintera. 
Dr. Kintera Soufrant is the inaugural Curator of Community Dialogue at the Milwaukee Art Museum. Soufrant is an artist scholar, museum educator, trained facilitator, and curator who brings her passion for community engagement, dialogue, and facilitation to her work as a performer, educator, and community member. She holds a PhD in performance studies from Northwestern University with certificates in critical theory, African and diaspora studies, and teaching. Her scholarship examines visual and performance art in the Black Atlantic, African diasporic visual aesthetics, Black feminist art traditions, and ritual and performance in the Haitian diaspora. Soufrant has curated and facilitated performances, educational and community programming venues, such as New York's Judson Church, the Field Museum's Environment, Culture and Conservation Division, Lynx Hall, independently formed Chicago-based community art spaces, Dukan 7002 and Praxis Place, as well as the recently founded Haitian American Museum of Chicago. She continues to write and publish and has taught at Oberlin College, Northwestern University and Illinois State University. After the break, Kentara Soufran. Welcome, Kentara, to Imagine This Podcast. Hey, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to speak with you today. I gotta tell you, it's it, this has felt like, at least for, for you and me, Kentara, this is, feels like years and years in the making. I remember yeah. um, when when you were a fellow at Exfabula, we, we'd, uh, we'd heard so much about you and then sort of uh, ascended in this job. And I was like, we got to connect with her. And now, finally, after all these years, I'm so happy to be able to chat with you a little bit. We've totally been ships that pass in the night, yeah. and then, but like have so many constellations. Like yeah. Diane has been an Imagine MKE fellow, and then we've had opportunities to share space. So yes, it's nice to finally be able to talk to you. Well, to kick us off, first question for you, Kantara. We'd love if you would tell us a story of an arts or cultural experience that left a strong imprint on you. They can't see me, but I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I sat back in my chair and like struck a thinking pose because that's a really good question. That's awesome. You you also can't see her as she as she stro strokes her I'm, chin. Thinking about this, very ponderous. That is, um, this is gonna be twofold. So I went to Oberlin College for my undergrad, same place as Elizabeth, um, which is why there might be a little bit less formality here <laughs> than in other conversations. But I went to Oberlin and while at Oberlin, I was a McNair fellow. And the mm. McNair program was a program that took students who were traditionally underrepresented in higher education. So low income, first generation, BIPOC identified students and really supported their their pursuit of research over the over the summer and mentorship and sort of um, their ability to sort of grow in their thinking and um, pursue success in academia or beyond. And so the first year that I did that program, my project focused on Haitian art in the Haitian diaspora. And it focused on that because I didn't, we grew up with works of art in our home, but we didn't necessarily I didn't necessarily grow up with an understanding that there was more <laughs> than like the art that you often think about when you think about Haitian art. I didn't know that there was a whole scholarly field and history and mm -hmm. I, I couldn't have named Haitian artists, right? If you mm -hmm. asked me at the time when I was 19, 20 years old. So I remember part of what was awesome about the program was that I got research funds. And so I purchased all of these catalogs from museums and all of these books that were talking about Haitian art. And there was a catalog from the Davenport Museum of Iowa, and it had a whole bunch of works in it and a few other catalogs. I think at that, I don't think at that time I was able to afford or find the Milwaukee Art Museum's catalog on Haitian art. But I remember at some point I saw some works by Hector Hippolyte, who is a, a Haitian artist. He's sort of like the 
the the father of the Haitian Renaissance. Um, I say that with air quotes, Haitian Renaissance. So from like the 1930s to the 1950s, maybe 60s, 70s. And I remember seeing Hector Hippolyte's work and it was this piece called The Adoration of Christ. And so it's this black Christ figure on a cross, all black background. And then these white, maybe female um, figures um, they're they're black, but they're all dressed in white female figures kneeling, kneeling around the cross in a bed of flowers. Mm -hmm. And so I remember seeing that piece and reading about Hector Hippolyte and reading about the ways in which he was a, a third generation Vodou priest and how Vodou iconography and sort of Christian iconography or Catholic iconography blended together and the coded symbols of his portraits. And I was like, oh, I'm all about this. <laughs> and And then... I had the opportunity to like, I went to visit some friends in Chicago, like a few, I think maybe in January. So this summer from July to August, I do this research project. And then that January I go to Chicago and I'm able to visit some friends who had moved there. And they said, hey, do you want to go to Milwaukee? Like, it's not that far. Because I, I learned through the summer that Milwaukee had this really large Haitian art collection. Mm. And so we drive up. I don't even remember seeing the Calatrava building. What I remember is actually <laughs> being, and the Calatrava building is awesome, but what I remember is being in the museum and hunting for the Haitian collection at that time, because mm. it, it was, we were not the same layout that we are today. And I remember like turning a corner and the first piece that I saw was that Hector Hippolyte, the adoration of Christ. Wow. And I remember getting chills standing in front of it and be like, oh my gosh, like this is the piece that I've been looking at and talking about. And I think about that piece because it reminds me one of how important it is for you to see images that look like you and that represent your culture and your history, mm. which is what I got when I saw it in the book. Mm. But I was really transformed when I saw it in person. So it reminds me of how there's nothing like standing in front of the work of art, like standing in front of a piece that someone's hand has been on, their matter and energy has been near it. It's been touched by them. They're still there in essence. Mm. And so that was a moment where I understood the power of like being in person with a work of art and how a work of mm. art can move you. So um, thanks for the opportunity to share that because wow. it stays with me. That's so incredible. I. I, I want to ask the question that might not have an answer, which is yeah. you obviously were primed for that experience, given yeah. your, given your, your life, your context, all of that stuff, right? How do we, how do we make other people have that experience, whether it's that painting or, or another one, right? Like how do people get that feeling of transformational, like it almost feels like everything about that, that moment in your life, like yeah. everything about your life led you to that place. How does that happen for, you know, the person on the bus, right? Like the, what you just described is like the, you, you're sort of like inside the matrix at that point, right? Yeah. <laughs> the whole reason why I went into museums instead of pursuing formal academia was because I, I wanted to be in public spaces and public spaces mm -hmm. where I felt like, you know, my grandmother's multiple knowledges would be appreciated and accepted, right? So mm -hmm. my my grandma um, is someone who is like still alive and well, living in Haiti and didn't have any formal schooling, isn't necessarily literate in the ways that we traditionally understand literacy. And this woman has like raised several children, buried several children, also managed acres upon acres of land, you know, in terms of farming, runs a business, has all of this knowledge. And so I didn't want to be in spaces where that knowledge wouldn't be received and honored. And so for me, I was always interested in public spaces and public cultural spaces. That said, I also realized that part of the beauty of MAM is sort of twofold. One, it is a beautiful and awesome and inspiring space, the building in itself as a work of art and also what we have in it. And I think that there's also a way in which that beauty can feel inaccessible to some, like you have to know something to really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And so the irony of wanting to be in public spaces so that my grandmother could enter is that I also need to remind my grandmother that she has all that she needs <laughs> to engage mm -hmm. with this building and this work. And ultimately, if she just roams and decides, I like that, I don't like that, that is good enough. So I guess, David, I think about it a lot in terms of how can I 
not give permission, but like really remind people that they have all the knowledge that they need to engage with the work of art and that this is their space to play and be inspired. And I guess I had that in the McNair program. Like I had people who were shepherding me, right? And like giving me permission to pursue things. And a lot of how I'm thinking about widening access to the museum is thinking about how can I be a shepherd and a facilitator, right? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes you just need like one person just like mm -hmm. walking you through the space and maybe taking you through through the like decorative art collection or the Haitian collection or a self-taught um, and folk art collection. And then you see something that you didn't expect to see and you're like, man, that's amazing. I feel like it's like those little programs where I'm able to do that, that really David gives those opportunities to folks. Hmm. I'm struck by this idea, right? That like what you've described of like facilitating and almost like offering the opportunity for folks to engage at wherever they are is really like touch, right? And, and I think in, in our world of like <clears throat> nonprofit management, the <clears throat> the grit of it is like, well, what's your impact? What have you done? How do you know, how do you connect it to your program, right? And, mm -hmm. and I think what you've just shared sort of lands on me is that like, that's the wrong measure, right? Mm -hmm. the, the right mm -hmm. measure is how wide of a funnel can we build to get as many people into this magical experience? Because something in there is going to touch, something in there is going to hit. And I think that is, you know, just speaking of, of ships passing the night, my, my wife um, was also a McNair fellow. Oh. Uh, and so she was, she's a, she's a white lady from, from central Wisconsin, right? Grew up on yeah. a dairy farm. And so because of that, she qualified for the program and mm -hmm. the, the program led her to grad school, led her to her PhD. You know, I mean, it was like, they didn't have to teach her anything, right? They just said, yeah. here, here's some opportunities for you. Check it out. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something really powerful about that. Yeah. It makes me think of the concept of empowerment. How do you measure the, the trust that someone begins to feel in themselves in in a space that might be might be new to them and i think that leads me back to a phrase that comes up a lot in museum culture and in arts nonprofits organizations the transformational power of the arts that's what we're trying to talk about when we're trying to talk about the transformational power of the arts it's it's the individual seeing themselves in a new light and having the confidence yeah. to use their voice and use their perspective and bring everything that they are to the table at that moment and meet a work of art or an art performance with their own experience and know that it's valid. 100%. Elizabeth, I guess I was thinking about, for some reason, I'm thinking about like the national crisis that we're in right now. <laughs> like, wait, oh. wait, which one? Which, <laughs> which one? one? Like there's, um, you know, we're like still very much in a global pandemic, but, and um, I'm thinking about right now, the hearings for the January 6th insurrections mm -hmm. are happening. And then just like a few days ago, there were like members of white nationalist group, 30 more who are arrested um, for attempting to cause a lot of harm at a pride parade, I believe in Idaho. And so for some reason, Elizabeth, when you're talking about the transformational power of the arts, I'm not, yeah, it, it is that, and it is like the ability to see yourself and to be transformed. And I was also thinking about how part of it is a like the arts really can provide a language and shift narratives and provide new language when the rhetoric can be really toxic, mm. you know, like right mm -hmm. now, like the national rhetoric over like violence and white fear about being like minorities in our nation and the uptick in violence on black people and LGBTQI plus people. For me, that's that's being fed by rhetoric. And so how can how can museums and the transformational power of the art really help to sort of counterbalance what the public discourse isn't offering us? And I think that's a really good measuring stick for museums. To bring it back to the Haitian art collection, I promise I don't do this on purpose. It just, it just, it just happens. Right? There's an artist in our collection, Philomeo Bent. I've just made him my uncle. I like love him so much. <laughs> And Philomel Ben, when you come to the, when you come to the museum <laughs> and you see his work, his work is a lot of documenting these moments in Haitian history that he didn't necessarily live through. Mm. Um, but he's documenting because he he talks about how 
art is like the holy book, right? Long mm. after you and I are here, that art is going to be a record for who we are and what we believed and what we what we did. And mm. so as the rhetoric shifts over time, I think about how a really good art museum should be able to sort of document that shift mm. so that we always have a way of looking back and looking forward. I guess for me, that's like my metric of transformation. Mm. I think about all the LGBTQI artists who are in our collection or not, and how to look at their work is to look at their humanity mm. and to look at the ways in which they're wrestling with questions of survival and community and joy and trauma sometimes, but not always. And what would that mean if you did not identify or see that community as human and you were able to like sit with it, you know, and gain understanding and meaning from it. So that was a long way of me thinking about how I don't think these things are abstract and I don't think that they're separate from conversations around violence and humanity and witnessing. Can I just pull the thread on this a little bit for yeah. potentially like getting down a, a weird rabbit hole? But I think there's something really fascinating here. I, I agree with you, right? It is not like these issues are life and death and they are present and not abstract. Yeah. And I think in some ways, and I'd be very curious about your take on this, that like I think people intuitively understand that, which is why when there was that bus mural a couple of, in yeah. 2019 that it became such a thing because that mural I read that the the bus the, yeah the bus mural basically like exposed the truth about what was happening at the border right and and people were like I don't want to see that in our current day and age with the current sort of national crises that, that, that we're that we're struggling through that how do we get at what we've been talking about right that transformational power where we can sort of give new language to rhetoric or new context for experience when there are people who are just like, get that away from me. Like that's too much for, for, for my identity. That's too much for how I view myself as a good person. That just, mm -hmm. that feels like the gap that we haven't sort of figured out. And I, I'm just like, it's something we think about a lot here at Imagine. And given, given it seems like you think about it a lot too, <laughs> I'd be yeah. curious what you think. Oh man, it's like, how long did it take for me to get to a point where I was like, how oh, capitalism, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm even into our conversation. So in my role, and I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of uh, my title is Curator of Community Dialogue at the time of mm -hmm. this recording. And as essentially in this role, I, I do two things. One is I oversee adult programming broadly defined. And I also oversee like building sustainable community partnerships. And for me, that also means centering black and brown audiences, which is something that we committed to doing in our strategic direction. That said, that first part of overseeing adult programming is something that I've been, I want to say wrestling with, but untangling a little bit because it's like, well, there's a lot of people here who do adult programming. Like what is unique right. to community dialogue? Right. And as I, as I mull it over and think about programming for the coming fiscal year, I think that what's unique about community dialogue is that the creation of spaces of trust, vulnerability, fear, repeated engagements, you know, the, that kind of witnessing that we're talking about, but in a sustained way where you walk away with sort of a qualitative metric, like the feeling of like, oh man, I feel like I was, I was in community there, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of like a quantitative metric. Mm -hmm. And so David, um, the, the question of capital came to mind because I was thinking about how part of that means investing in a lot of micro moments, which aren't always like the sexiest thing that I think that people want to engage in. Even as I think about how public art can be of service to that, I think part of that also means like investing in works that are not shock for shock's sake, but really like right. there to promote engagement. Um, and so I suppose like this is me speaking as a programmer who's <laughs> like, where where's where's the facilitation in this space to sort of engage with that? And also mm -hmm. where's like the funding and the lack of fear to make that happen? And I say lack of fear because. I work within an institution and sometimes that means 
I have autonomy and also like, I should probably check this with someone, you know, like <laughs> let me check in with marketing to make sure that the language on this is clear. Like, let me check in with my boss so that her bosses, the board of trustees, like are aware that this is happening, um, which is where, I don't know if it's necessarily capitalism, but it probably is the idea that at some point someone's fear might limit the funding and the opportunity for something to happen, even when it's necessary. So I don't have an answer to your question, David, about how do we how do we create those transformational moments? But I, I do want to say that I do see that at some point tied to funds and funding and the willingness to fund things that mm -hmm. are bold and scary and mm -hmm. about creating sustainable change over time that's in service of uplifting communities that have been traditionally marginalized. Yeah, I feel like so, I need like three hours with you all. <laughs> yeah, this is this is awesome. I'm trying to like distill what you're what you're reflecting. And it sounds like as a museum programmer, your goal is to harness and like unleash the power and momentum of empathy on an individual level, right? Like cultivating empathy on an individual level with the hopes and the knowledge that that will have a multiplicative effect in, in society that will extend beyond the walls of the museum. People will take the experiences that they've had that made them have chills when they turn the corner or when the facilitator asked them a question that made them uncomfortable. Those, those moments are gonna sit with them and root inside them and they're going to continue to grow you know outside of the time bound program that they attended at the museum so i i wonder yeah i guess the question is is the work of the museum continuous in that way like you're creating experiences right but it's then the individual's own perspective and what they do with it when they leave the museum that is going to make it a growth experience or not. I am so happy this is being recorded because that means that I can go back and listen to exactly what you said, Elizabeth. And say, <laughs> yes, that is my job, <laughs> put it in the narrative. Um, continuous. I'm getting caught up on the word continuous, but maybe, maybe it is, maybe we're talking about the same thing, but actually I'm thinking about imprint and an impact, like never, never in my wildest dreams when like 20 year old me came to the Milwaukee Art Museum and saw that Hector Hippolyte, like in person, never would I have thought I would be working here. You know, that wasn't even in my mind. It was like a series. It's a series of like contact moments actually that led to me mm. being here. I got that book and I saw that like this museum had a collection of Haitian art. And then I came to the museum, right? And then I was touched by it. And then I didn't think about this museum for a long time, but then I had an opportunity to, to gather Haitian community members, artists, scholars. And I also invited art institutions in the Midwest who had Haitian collections, right? Including the Milwaukee Art Museum. And that led to more contact and more contact and more contact. So I suppose, Elizabeth, if you're talking about continuous in terms of it's multiple points of contact and engagement, then yes, even mm -hmm. if that imprint is, I'm visiting from New Zealand, I'm <laughs> going to be here once. And the imprint of this museum is like, oh my goodness. One, not only is this building stunning and provides me with an amazing view of Lake Michigan, but you know what? That collection was fantastic. And also like it had so many jewels that I was not expecting. Mm. I remember a few weeks ago, like there were some folks, there were folks here and they happened to be here the night of a concert that I was working and they were looking for something. And I was like, yeah, let me show you, which is just my personality. I walk around with strangers. <laughs> um, all the time. And they were here from Spain. And so they were excited to see the Calatrava Museum, but they were also like, oh my gosh, your collection is like so impressive. Like that, that is an imprint. And I hope those imprints are always invitations to stay engaged with us, mm. either like by coming back or by like following us and seeing what we're doing. And also I think for those who live in Milwaukee, the continuous that you're talking about and the imprint that you're talking about for me is, and actually I am gonna deliberately sort of center the Haitian art collection here. 
you may live and die in Milwaukee and you may never get on a plane and go to Haiti, right? Your only connection with Haiti might be through that Haitian collection, but I hope that when you meet a Haitian person, right, if you have that opportunity, you will see them as a human and not a person tied to a narrative that you have inherited, right? You will be able to witness them as someone who comes with like a cultural tradition and a history and a sense of nuance because mm. you have experienced art that documents their nuance and their history, right? The nuance mm -hmm. and the history of the country from which they originate. So continuous, yes, but I think how those how those connections are rooted and how those connections ultimately come back to seeing people as human and seeing each other as interconnected is I think the goal. Did that answer your question? Or is that like another rabbit <laughs> yes. hole? No, no. no. It's like it's, so so many it. so many truth bombs. It's hard to it's hard <laughs> to sort of like recover. <clears throat> you know, so over the last few years, everybody here, right, in the in not only the the Milwaukee arts and culture community, but you know, the 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 national arts and culture community and just sort of the world at large, right, is, is dealing with, as you mentioned, uh, a challenging social, political, like all of the stuff, right? And yet, as a museum, MAM functions as as you've talked about, right? This incredibly beautiful architectural jewel on Lake Michigan with, you know, world class collections. And as in your role, what what do you see the role is of that museum, that institution that you work for, advancing, you know, and supporting social movements in the culture, right? Like it, it seems like. It has an incredible role, given that it is a holder of knowledge and a holder of cultural creation and has as, you know, a, a cadre of, of, of curators and, and knowledge holders that sort of see how how artists have sort of been at the at the lead of social movements. Hmm. What is the role of museums, right, as we're trying to deal with stuff like segregation and Black Lives Matter and like this global pandemic and social polarization? When I think about the role of museums, they're inherently spaces for us to gather, to gather and bear witness to the resiliency and creativity and the awesomeness and the forward thinking of humans. And in doing so, we are, we like learn something new about ourselves, about each other, about the world around us. I do see museums as playgrounds. And if you get nothing else from this podcast, like what I want you to get from it is that the Milwaukee Art Museum is your playground. It should be mm -hmm. your space mm -hmm. for solace and comfort and mm -hmm. learning, but also like your place to giggle and laugh and hang out and just make noise literally, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I wanna say that about museums as a public space for folks to gather in a way that might be different than a park, but in a way in which parks allow folks to sort of socialize and like take up space and be and like pull from the environment around them. I want that same sort of pulling from the environment at the museum to do whatever you need it to do in that moment. Maybe what you need is to cry. So you find the work of art that does that for you, right? Mm. And allows you to emote, or maybe what you need is time alone. So you find that work of art that brings that in you. That's like, my I say surface but not in a superficial way that's like my surface answer beyond the surface the pragmatics of that work I'm still thinking about how to do that and how to do that in a in a really good way and I think the reason why if I'm honest I'm thinking about it still is that I'm still wrestling with like capacity and COVID and thinking about like there's there's like the museum, the building and the works of art. And then there's the people who steward and make all of this work possible. And mm. when I left the museum for the first time, the thing that I missed was the Haitian art collection, obviously. <laughs> and also the people, like my colleagues who are amazing and have heart and are like willing to do the work. And sometimes like so willing to do the work that we burn out. And we are also the survivors of or living through a pandemic and bearing witness to stacks of national tragedies. Mm. And that takes a toll on how, how quickly we work, how slowly we work, how we respond and how we plug in. This is not me making excuses. It's me thinking through like, I never thought that I'd be at a point where I'm like, what do I do when I have a platform 
And I also realized that I need to take care and use that platform wisely so as mm. not to create more harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, a, uh, I think a good example of this is like, okay, you have an Instagram, great. <laughs> and uh, Juneteenth is coming. Let me use that as an example because I think this is something that we've done before. Juneteenth is coming. You have an Instagram. Is it enough to like do an Instagram post, like praising Juneteenth and also like praising some Black identified artists in our collection. That I think is a really surface form of engagement Mm -hmm. or, and this is something that I learned in sort of conversations with marketing. um, Actually, the more you do that, the more you redirect people away from Northcott, like a community neighborhood, right? And the large Mm -hmm. Juneteenth celebrations. Like, so is it better Mm -hmm. to actually use your platform to amplify other community partners? And you actually don't worry about the clicks because the more clicks you get, like the more like you're actually moving your audience away from where they need to go. I think a lot of what I've been doing lately has been thinking about what is a way of being in service to my neighbors Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like also doing an assessment of my own tools and resources. And that includes like our people powers so that I can both show up in a way where I'm not like crawling to the finish line and also support the building of a city that I want like my daughter's daughter's daughters to inherit Mm. and their friends. Yeah. And that work might take my whole life. Like it's not, Mm. it's not, it's not going to be solved in my three to 10 years at the Milwaukee Art Museum. Not that I'm putting a cap on it. I'm just throwing out numbers, for example. (laughs) You referenced the strategic direction a little bit in this conversation. And I'm wondering for the listeners, if you can dive into that a little bit more. So this strategic direction, you know, was implemented, I believe in the beginning of 2020. I think it was no, so, no, sorry. Yeah. So our strategic direction, I think it was actually published in November, 2019. And okay. I actually think that's really important because mm. it's publishing in November, 2019 means actually a lot of 2019 and even before 2019 was spent thinking through what's the future of the Milwaukee Art Museum? Mm-hmm. To whom are we committed? What are the values that we are putting forward? And how can we be accountable and sort of make these values public facing? Mm-hmm. And I think that is what the strategic direction does. It is the document that commits and recenters black and brown audiences, art relevant to our community, expansive hospitality, robust community programming, fiscal alignment so we can actually do the work in a financially sound and sustainable way. And to me, there's like two really big things that I want to honor here about the strategic direction. One, it is it is a public facing document that really allows our listeners and beyond to hold the museum accountable to what we said Mm -hmm. we're going to do, which was honoring the stories of black and brown audiences and the folks who have often felt that this space is quite literally too white for them to enter, right? Mm -hmm. That is unwelcoming for them and doing that work. Sometimes we don't always do it well. And that is where those repeated and continuous engagements come in because those continuous engagements are where the trust building happens, right? Mm -hmm. And the the ability to say, you know what, ma'am, you did this. I don't like it. And I'm telling you, I don't like it because I trust you to hear me and do Mm -hmm. something about it. So I think that's one, the important thing for folks to know about the street direction is that it's a public document. It's not perfect. We're actually continuing to build on that and refine Mm -hmm. it and grow it in terms of its depth and its breadth, but it is there. The other thing, and this is why I mentioned the timing of which it was released is because Mm -hmm. that document preceded what people are calling like the racial reckoning of 2020, right? It wasn't Mm -hmm. something that was rushed because a lot of institutions were receiving pressure at the time, especially following the the murder of George Floyd. That document was something that our entire institution and our leadership team and our board of trustees were thinking through long before the pandemic and this global reckoning were real. And I think that's important because I think that goes back to like the values that were being recentered before that, before it became publicly sexy to do Mm -hmm. that. No, that's a, that's a really great, important distinction to highlight. Thank you. What are some of the programs that have flown or not flown? They have, they have, they have <laughs> they've flown, <laughs> they've flown from the strategic direction and the realigned values of this institution that you've been central in. And what are some of the programs that you're most proud of and excited about at this point? Oh, that is 
those are great questions and they, they the answers might bleed into each other. So I will say that at the time of this recording, it's a Wednesday and it's a Wednesday when we're getting to host tonight Black Space, we're hosting them. So that is something that I'm really excited about. So Black Space, for those who are unfamiliar, was co-founded recently by Corey Fells, Darius Smith, and Dr. Leah Knox, who's a trained psychotherapist. And Black Space offers free group therapy for Black and Brown individuals to normalize therapy in those wow. communities. And so I, I like love the organizers. I love this group. I And I'm just so happy that we get to host them. And this is our second time around hosting them. And it's it's not something that we're working on, like the public release. And maybe by the time this airs, like that public release happens. But I'm excited to host them because it's in direct alignment with how a museum can and should function for a variety of folks, right? Like mm. a museum can actually be a tool in your toolkit for mental health and holistic wellness, right? Mm. And at that, a museum as a safe space for black and brown folks to like work through collective healing together. And for me, that really hits the strategic direction in terms of robust community program, but also making art relevant to a variety of lives. Black Space is one of the programs that I'm super excited about um, and that I was happy to sort of host here. The other is, there's so many. I think that there's a lot of community partners and I'm, I'm gonna say think tanks for lack of a better word, but like, mm-hmm members who are holding us accountable and helping us to think through how to do our work in the best way. So both these groups sort of preceded me coming back to MAM in 2021, Mm. I think is when I came back. I don't know. Time is a constant. (laughs) (laughs) But one is our community advisory group, which literally was formed in a way to help us actualize what it means to create expansive hospitality and do robust community programming and make art relevant to our community. And so we're in our second season of the community advisory group, which I work really closely with. And I think Mm -hmm. that is a really dynamic cross section of Milwaukee from artists to nonprofits to folks in the private sector who are really walking through. And I think they, quite literally, they can, they continued on this journey with us for another year because they have hit us with some hard truths and they have witnessed us listening and trying to realize those truths. So not just talk for talk's sake, hopefully. Sometimes the the building of the work happens slowly, but it is happening. Mm-hmm. And so the community advisory group is one of those groups. We also have a native advisory group, which is native identified people's some in Wisconsin, Milwaukee for sure, and then some who are outside of Wisconsin who are really helping us to think through how to honor Native peoples and the representation of Native peoples past, present, and future in our collection and beyond. And that advisory group preceded me, and then I've had the opportunity to, well, it didn't precede me, the work of the Native initiatives in at MAM, like a group of individuals who've been working on Native interpretation that preceded me, and then I was able to be there for the formation of the advisory group. But I would say that I have a lot of love for the advisory group because, of, again, that work really stemmed from what does it mean to go beyond just the land acknowledgement and to really deepen that work to get to like the systemic colonialism and neocolonialism in our collection and how do we center native voices in that work that's one of the organizations that i'm really excited about and then things like programmatic series that are just going to continue to happen like lakeside at ma'am which is our free outdoor summer program and concert and performance series and Lakeside was one of those ways of thinking about how do we create a variety of opportunities that are low stakes, folks can come, it's like that light touch that you're talking about, David, come and like get a taste of what ma'am has to offer, right? Mm -hmm. And also really utilize ground in this earth that we're able to steward for the time being as a way of gathering people. And I think also for me, behind the scenes, one of the things that I'm really excited about with Lakeside is especially the first year that it launched summer of 2021 was there's a bunch of artists and performers in Milwaukee that I knew who were unable to perform. So, okay, how can I pay like Milwaukee talent for its time and pay folks in a way that is equitable and more than they would be paying if they're gigging at a bar. 
equitable pay for folks is really important. Um, so that's something that I've been excited to see realized. We we recently had a block party for Derek Adams, like our first ever block party at Mayo. Yeah. Um, the Derek Adams exhibition. Um, and for me, you know, I get really excited when I get to just host Black folks in a space, like through a Black cultural lens and way of being and to have all Black vendors. Like, so that day was the confluence of so many games and I still am riding the high of that and folks who came and had never been to man before and just had mm. so much fun and also that was an example of how advice from the community advisory group in terms of what they would hope to see from that kind of experience like how they wanted to connect with people how like the themes of the Derek Adams exhibition including black gatherings as forms of resistance they had like suggestions and they were like like bingo, like I want to have like a community bingo where I like get to know people and talk with people. And I was like, okay, I love bingos. Let's try to make it work. And so to get feedback from folks about how like, I felt like I could line dance and I was talking with neighbors and connecting with Aww. folks and I had to give someone a compliment who I didn't know, right? Like, so hearing that people were able to connect mm. with strangers and dance and have fun and engage in unexpected ways at the museum. That I think is something that I'm also still really proud of. Wonderful. Kintara, can you give a shout out to some of the organizations that collaborated with you on the block party? Always, always. I want to, I want to really boost up the education department, Ooh. which is often my major collaborator. And I want to boost them up also because I think long before museums were thinking about DAI work, education departments and museums are always thinking about how to make art relevant to communities, right? And mm -hmm. how to not just make it a beautiful space with beautiful works on a wall, but really thinking about how is this space accessible to and for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so our art department, especially our youth and family program was there um, making art, but we had Noah's Art was there doing face painting and body yoga was there with yoga. DJ O was there providing tunage and Wendover Hall for the entire day. So when you come in and expect this like white space that's quiet and serene and beautiful, actually, no, you get this awesome playlist that lets you know that this is a space that is yours to have fun. Joanna Brooks from Embody Yoga, who I should say here was the first person that I booked for Lakeside at MAM. Mm -hmm. I was like, I want there to be yoga. I want yoga to be led by a Black identified person. And she was someone who I'd been following. And then I, I just got really excited to have her. And I'm so excited for all the work that she's doing. Not Your Mama's Tea was there facilitating a high tea um, oh. where they, something for everyone, where they had <laughs> seen, were able to have conversations around um, mothers because their Derek Adams mural features a lot of women and mothers, including Belle Phillips, right? And Belle Phillips, who I think we often see her and see her photographed in her civic roles, but the photos of her that we mm. see in the mural are photos of her that would maybe exist on the walls of her home, like mm. a portrait of her and her husband and her first son, like a family portrait, and then her dancing during one of the nights of the fair housing marches. So these, mm. these moments of intimacy. So Not Your Mama's Teeth facilitated a conversation around Black mothers and the mothers in people's lives. We had spades. If you don't know, spades... In the black community is a card game that will really <laughs> make or break relationships like it is i i said publicly like i was not playing spades i am playing <laughs> spades i was not going to be insulted or like cry it was, like it is a smack talking experience <laughs> so, but we had spades and spades and the spades tournament that we had was facilitated by um social x in mm -hmm. milwaukee um, and at the time that we're recording, this is their homecoming week and Social X is a uh, young professional organization that really, I think, does such a great job modeling why gatherings are so important in our city and really why gatherings and the opportunity to gather, especially for young professionals, like helps to boost our economy and like keep people in Milwaukee. So Social X facilitated that. We also had uh, food trucks at Mayo on Art Museum Drive, and those food trucks include Kellen's Bistro, Sweet Crush, and then Big Daddy Barbecue, I believe, were the, the three food trucks that we had. And then um, we had 
uh, bronze boxes as well. So a slight like connection to MKE Black where one of the raffle prizes was you could get one of these bronze boxes, which is all Black vendor. And also our our t-shirts were printed by the printing arm of Walnut Way, um, which so like a way of thinking about all the different ways and different levels that we can really amplify Black vendors. That was, uh, that was the block party. So, oh, I, I'm sorry. I forgot to mention that Blue Mohammed provided sound bowl healing, which mm-hmm. was like amazing. She was stationed in the, the Haitian gallery. And what was great about that was that you could hear sure. the bowls yeah. across the museum. And it just, uh, it was like such mm. a beautiful experience. Like it was like all points of the museum. And we also, I my thanks to the docents who offered drop-in tours of the museum, which was another feedback from the advisory group. When I had first been thinking about the block party, we thought just outside, games, hanging out, folks getting to know each other. But what they mentioned was one, the opportunity to actually speak to and connect with neighbors as you would during a block party, especially within the black community, but also like, how do we invite them into the museum, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea of like tours as one way, which means like you don't just get the Derek Adams experience. You get to actually see everything that we provide with the hopes that you get to come back and you know that you will be coming back because you've had this light touch already. Hmm. Gosh, I feel like the the other two questions we had sort of queued up, you, you've already sort of answered it in different ways. But I did I did want to create a little bit of space to ask this, given that you are an insider. What's a secret about the museum that folks who've never been there need to know about? Like what's something that, that the public just doesn't know about the museum that they should know about? There's so many. <laughs> I had my thinking phase again. Your first and your last question both stumped me. Okay, I think I have three secrets. And they're not really secrets, they're more like factoids. One is that there are three different architects who have informed our art museum campus. Hmm. There's Saarinen, Kaler, and Calatrava who designed the white building with the wings. But the last two, Kaler and Calatrava, were all inspired by Saarinen who Mm. like created the building that we know is like the war memorial and that Mm. we share, right? So you have these three different architects and these three different buildings that don't necessarily look like each other, but they all are actually guided by the same principle and informed by the same artist. So I think that's Mm -hmm. a little secret that I really like. Two is that because of course, Haiti was going to come back (laughs) to this. (laughs) If you walk into the museum and walk in through sort of the the European collection, you will see all of these like fancy gold table clocks right? Um, And these fancy decorative objects like chests and whatnot. Um, The family that um, donated those works is also the same family that donated a lot of our Haitian art collection. Mm -hmm. And that's really important because those two works and areas look nothing alike. Mm -hmm. Um, And decorative art um, collection and those gold table clocks um, and the Haitian art collection, both of them, many of the works in the Haitian art collection were gifts from Richard and Erna P. Flagg. And Richard Flagg was someone who at a very young age, so they emigrated to the U.S. in about 1941 from Germany. And Richard Flagg was someone who at a very early age was really mentored by curators and collectors and he really trusted his eye as a a collector and as a curator and like um someone who like gathered these beautiful objects and he Mm -hmm. talks about how in the 70s like on a trip to new york he like is walking through and he sees a work that's unlike anything else that he had ever seen before but he trusted his eye and that work was the first work of haitian art that he (laughs) bought and he went on to buy hundreds of haitian artworks and what i love about that and why that for me as a secret is because it reminds you that there's a beauty in all of the objects right and like you you never know like if you just keep your mind and your eye open like you will stumble across something that you did not anticipate you would love and yet here you are Mm. um so that's the other secret and the last one is a really pragmatic one which is if you email us and it takes us like a week to get back to you 
it's not because we don't love you and we don't care about you. It's because we are working to make sure that the museum is better and efficient. We're connecting with each other. And so we may have a lag time, but that is not a measurement of your worth and value to us. That is always a great reminder. Mm -hmm. There's human beings on the other end of all the magic that's made at MAM. Yeah. And I, I say that also like personally for myself, my job is to actually be in community and in conversation, right? And some of my job includes planning and connecting with people. But yeah, we work at a museum. We, we shouldn't be behind our desk all the time. Sometimes we need to be out looking at the artwork. And if there's a delay, it's usually because we are planning something awesome for you and with you in mind. So don't be afraid to ping us again. Or look for you in the galleries. <laughs> actually, I... Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to start having meetings in the galleries. I love that. Like, yeah, it's just a good reminder yeah. and a good mm-hmm. way of resetting and being like, mm-hmm. I, before I could go weeks without stepping into galleries if I mm-hmm. love myself. And so it's nice to be around the people again and the works of art. They're my friends. <laughs> that sounds very wise. Well, Kentara, as we wind down our time together, we at Imagine This Podcast actually have the power of making our guests the leader of Milwaukee's arts and culture sector. However, it only lasts as long as this podcast episode. So (laughs) as a final question, we are wondering, what is the first policy that you would enact as the leader of arts and culture in Milwaukee? I would increase the salary of all of our public school teachers. Yeah, especially our our arts and humanities teachers. Mm. Yeah, I can name all of my art teachers, mm. <laughs> right? Mm. Like yeah. your art teachers are the people who are going to see you every single year. Your classroom teacher might change, but your art teachers and your music teachers, they've got you the entire time and they can mm. really have a hand in shaping your experience. And both that and because I'm kind of, I'm very worried about the future of public school education and it is a viable career option for the amazing educators that we know. And so I think I, my first policy might be increasing the salary or creating a higher base and salary for all of our public school educators, especially our art teachers. Mm, love that. Well, Kintara, thank you so much for all your wonderful reflections and insights about the museum and your role and being a facilitator and a programmer. Uh, it's, this has been amazing. Thank you, guys. I really enjoy talking. We to need you. to have you back. This is so incredible. Yeah. Thank you. So I much. love all the rabbit holes. Like this is <laughs> this is my dream. <laughs> oh wait, we forgot to ask. Where can people find you? With the exception of at the museum and in the gallery, where can folks find you? Either on social media or elsewhere. I mean, um, in the museum. <laughs> <laughs> so get your bus down to the museum yeah, and walk yeah, the gallery. Yeah. You'll find her. So yeah, just <laughs> like smart. email me, find me in the museum. Like let's let's go get some coffee or tea or food as we feel able. Yeah, love it. Thank you. Wow, what a great conversation. That was so cool. You know, I I was struck and I didn't bring this up during the interview because I didn't want to I didn't want to go down another rabbit hole. But you know, I I was reminded so much about this this class I took in in college called the the philosophy of art and the aesthetic, right? And it was all about philosophy and and arts and aesthetics and all that stuff, right? And read a lot of Hegel and mm-hmm. You know, Hegel has the the whole his whole sort of thing about like museums are 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 basically like vessels for dead art, right? Mm. That essentially like museum studies is essentially like the study of the death of art, right? And 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 I was always sort of struck by that. It always seemed a little bit too snarky, mm. and yet it always sort of stuck with me, right? Like you that there there are places that hold creation that has taken place in time, and 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 is the the place that you go to venerate work from the past, right? Mm. And I think the lasting takeaway from this conversation with Kentaro is that like that view is so outdated because the pieces come alive when you interact with them. Mm. And Kentaro's incredible sense of joy about art 
just in general, right? But then also specifically in her areas of study, that's the thing that brings everything to life, right? And that, mm. that that's sort of the animating power that art has that stays forever. And so I, I wanted to sort of float that, but I was like, Elizabeth's not going to let us make this <laughs> podcast in 90 minutes. We have to hit runtime goals. Yeah, we do have runtime goals, but um, I love rabbit holes, David. I'm I'm always game for rabbit holes and they can be edited on the back end to be smaller. So just know that. Yeah, I think you said it so beautifully. I mean, Kentara is one of those leaders who just, yeah, exudes joy about what she does and what a gift that is to our, our whole community. That's right. Do you know who else is a gift to our community? Our listeners. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review or contact us directly at pod at imaginemke.org. Imagine This Podcast is a team effort produced, edited, and hosted by David Lee and Lindsay Sheridan with support, increasingly support from Elizabeth Gasparka. Our theme music was written and produced by Bobby Drake. Thank you so much, Bobby. To catch all the latest from Imagine MKE, hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Imagine underscore MKE or Facebook at Imagine MKE. Thanks again, and we'll catch you all next Tuesday. G.